0: Welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara Setmayer, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. And we are still suffering through the COVID-19 debate, the no mask debate, the what are we going to do with kids in school because it's that time of year. I can't believe it's already like halfway through summer. It's mid-July. This is nuts. Um... This is uh, what's been happening the last couple of weeks over this discussion has really just been mind boggling. And the way that this president has handled this has been such a disaster. And the polling shown that um, all the major polls, national polls, Biden's up double digits. But as you've heard me say many times before, double digit polls don't matter when it comes to national polls because we don't have a national election. But swing state polls, state by state polls. That's what really matters. You still have to be wary of polls. You know, there's a lot of flaws with that. We saw it in 2016, but still interesting. Biden is winning in a lot of key places. Um, and he's within one point in Texas. One poll had him at six points ahead in Texas, which is crazy. Four points, four points. That's I don't know about that. I don't know if Biden has a chance at Texas, but the fact that it would even be in consideration like that, that he's within single digits a republic of a Republican in Texas tells you all you need to know. So Trump has royally screwed up this COVID-19 response in ways that are really starting to impact people, which is why he's so frenzied about getting kids back into school. So I'm going to get into that discussion in a second. But coming up on this episode, my guest, I talk with professor and author, Jennifer Mershia, who wrote a great book called Demagogue for President, the genius of um I'm sorry, the rhetorical genius of Donald Trump. That's it. That's the name of the book. Demagogue for President. And she is a, a an expert, a professor in rhetoric and communication. And obviously she's been following the Donald Trump rise to political power with great interest and decided to write a book about his the methods that he uses and and how effective they have been. I mean, he's he got him elected. So she really breaks it down in a way that's um, really educational. I learned I feel smarter after reading her book. Some of these things I kind of knew from my time in college studying communications and polycom stuff. But it kind of it was a refresher course for me in some of the more specific uh, six ways in which he uses uh, rhetoric, and she breaks it down. Um, so she's coming on to talk to me about that, and um, uh, it's a it's a good conversation because you can see how how Trump utilizes these things every single day. You'll recognize them, and uh, it's not new. These tactics, these techniques, have been around for hundreds of years, all, hundreds and hundreds of for a millennia. It goes back to ancient Greece. So stay tuned for that for Professor Jennifer Murcia talking about demagoguery and Trump. Um, back to the uh, schools. <laughs> so this week we saw the, the, the campaign and the White House really ramping up this whole idea that kids have to go back to school no matter what. Like they sound asinine pushing for this because they don't have a real plan right last week the vice president was telling people to ignore the cdc don't worry about the cdc guidelines don't let, don't let those guidelines stop you from reopening school yeah don't listen to the experts don't listen to the medical professionals like it's it just really is mind boggling there's just no words for it really so what are we supposed to do we're supposed to listen to trump right The CDC guidelines are too strict, so Trump is going to rewrite them. The White House is going to rewrite them, and that's what you're going to listen to. What? I mean, my good friend Tom Nichols, uh, he wrote a book called The Death of Expertise. If you have not read it, I encourage everyone to read this book. It will explain a lot of the Trump supporters, a lot of the the, the people who, um, the sycophants who follow him, how they reject science and experts and why. There's something called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Google that. It was a study done about 25 years ago by these two um, scientists and they were studying human behavior and why people reject facts. And then they, not only do they reject them, but then the more wrong they are, the more they cling to how right they think they are. It's a fascinating dynamic. I didn't even know that was there was something called you know there was a name for it, but that's what we're seeing with these crazies who won't wear masks, who are willing to send their kids to school without a real plan to keep them safe. I, you know, somebody made a point about we had frontline workers who were heroes, right? I think it was Alexandra Petri in the Washington Post. She writes a really good column, and a lot of times she writes them um, satirically. And she wrote, she wrote a piece where she said, no, you know, we have new frontline heroes. First, it was our medical professionals and the, the cashiers and, and the folks in the grocery stores and the people who are still letting, you know, running the country, allowing us to have our supplies, the Amazon delivery people, et cetera. Now it's our children because we're sending them to the front lines of the coronavirus war zone here by putting them back into school. Without a a serious plan, because somehow somebody, they believe that they're pushing this, that well, kids aren't really as affected as adults are. That may be true to some degree, but it's not that there's no impact. It's not like they're X-Men and they're mutants and they're completely immune to what's going on. No, kids, not only can they get it, but they can be spreaders, super spreaders. We already know that kids during the flu season or if they get lice or whatever, kids spread stuff because they hang out, they're, you know, they climb on top of each other, you have playtime. Kids are interactive. So to think that you can open up a school and just go back to normal as if coronavirus didn't exist, which it does, no matter how much Donald Trump wishes it away, it's an it's an airborne disease. It's spread through spittle and aerosol and touching things, everything that kids do in school. So I understand that this is a dilemma because there are people who are single parents or they, don't, they just don't have the ability to stay home and, and teach their kids online. Um, it's a luxury that a lot of families just don't have. But what are, but, but trying to figure out a safe way to get kids back to school is what we pay the experts in government to figure out right? I mean, figure it out. Just saying like that twit Betsy DeVos, our secretary our secretary of education, who was on CNN on State of the Union with Dana Bash last Sunday, with one of the most frustrating interviews. I mean, these Trump people, I just can't with them. Kudos to my colleague Dana Bash at CNN for trying to point, pinpoint her, point um nail her down with an with an, an answer. How do we get kids back to school safely? No one's arguing that kids shouldn't be back into school. Of course, they learn better in those environments. We know that. Obviously, also for parents, because if you don't have daycare, what are you going to do? There's a lot of reasons that we should have kids back in school. But we're not going to just put them back in a petri dish of plague. What are we doing? And she couldn't answer it. She just could not answer it. She kept repeating over and over again. The kids need to be back in school. Schools need to be open. I mean, between her and Trump and everybody else with this repeating it over and over again. Well, schools need to be open. That's just it. No, that's not just it. It's not fair to our children. It's not fair to our grandparents. It's not fair to our teachers who are at risk. So this is a colossal failure on top of the multitude of other colossal failures that have happened during this coronavirus debacle. And it's costing lives, and now we're going to put our our kids at risk too. It's it's um it's a mess, and I don't really know what the answer is. I, I'm not sure. I'm not a public health expert, but I know the answer is not putting piling kids back into school and opening schools as if everything's back to normal. There's a reason why sports sports are being canceled. You know, unfortunately, I feel so bad. I mean, I was an athlete in high school and you work so hard throughout your high school career to achieve certain goals and certain personal bests and team wins and championships and and then to have that all just taken away it's just it sucks nobody i mean obviously everyone is impacted by this and 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 people desperately want normalcy but we're never going to get there if we don't stop being a bunch of selfish jackasses and don't, and we don't do what we need to do to combat this virus, starting with wearing masks. Let's start with that. The fact that this has become such a, a political issue is is sad. It's a sad state for our country. You know, it really is. This is a public health issue. It's not a civil freaking liberties issue. It's not a the government coming in and trying to tell you what to do with your body. And I mean, for God's sakes, I'm a small C conservative. I don't. I like limited government. I don't like a big behemoth, le- leviathan government telling people what to do all the time. But this is common sense it's for the public good. There should be no argument over this. And it took the president to get for his advisors to beg and plead him to put on a mask to visit Walter Reed, which I just I can't even stomach. Because he once again used our military men and women, the wounded warriors of uh, even worse, as political props so that he could so that his advisors could show some kind of, quote, leadership. Really? That's what it took? He still hasn't answered for the Russian bounty story. Still hasn't answered for that. I mentioned that last week in the in in the podcast, and how despicable that is. I don't want to see Donald Trump anywhere near our our men and women in uniform. He's a disgrace, absolute disgrace. Just like every every patriarch in his family, from his grandfather on down, none of them served in the military. They did everything they could. As a matter of fact, his great grandfather fled to the U.S. to avoid service in the German army back in the early 1900s. So. It's a family, it's a generational cowardice there because they're selfish. and I'm going to talk about that in a second because I'm in the process of reading the Mary Trump book. I'm almost done with it. I was hoping to be done with it by the time I did this podcast, but but it's been a busy week, so I haven't gotten all the way through it, but I've gotten through enough of it to get a pretty clear picture of what's going on um with with uh, Trump and learn some things. What a fucked up family. Oh my goodness gracious. It's um, no wonder, no wonder this guy shouldn't be anywhere near power at all. Which explains some of his um, response to things and why he behaves the way he behaves. um, His attacks on Anthony Fauci, that's the new thing too now. Anthony Fauci is public enemy number one all of a sudden. These idiots in the White House really think they're going to take on Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's a national treasure. The guy's dedicated over 50 years of his life to public service and medicine and infectious diseases. He's a hero in his respective area of expertise in infectious diseases. Uh, this, is, this is who they want to take on. He has like a 70 plus percent approval. People look to Fauci as the adult in the room on all this not even, they don't even look to that Dr. Burke, so I can't stand with those freaking scarves and, and her kiss-ass demeanor with Trump during everything. You know, she took that route. Fauci tried to be as diplomatic as possible throughout this whole thing. Meanwhile, he knew. He knew that Trump was incompetent. He knew that what Trump was doing and that the response coming out of the government was inadequate. He knew it. And finally... He said, the hell with this. I'm going to start speaking my mind again because they have marginalized Fauci. If you notice, you haven't really seen him. They didn't have coronavirus task force meetings for weeks on camera anyway. It's been reported that he hadn't talked to the president since June 2nd. He finally had a conversation with him this week. Yeah, because people in the White House were actively putting out oppo research and negative information about Fauci to discredit him. It's it's insane. And then it went so far as Peter Navarro, the White House trade representative guy, economic advisor, he's not the trade representative. That's a different position. He's the White House economic advisor. Actually wrote a USA Today opinion piece and had it published attacking Fauci. Saying how he doesn't listen to him. Because he's been wrong about so many things. Oh, are you shitting me? I, and then the White House tried to say that, oh, Navarro didn't have authorization to, to write that. And Trump came out and said, oh, well, that was his opinion. I didn't, I, I get along with Fauci. I, he's, you know, I get along with them. Bullshit. Does anybody really think that Peter Navarro just went rogue and Trump didn't know? Get the hell out of here. Of course he did but they play good cop bad cop and they float things out there. There's no system. There's no there's no real vetting system of things in the White House. They give me a break. But attacking Fauci is really just I think they've jumped the shark on this one. You know, I think the American people are are looking at the situation and saying, "Really? You want us now to not listen to the preeminent expert on this?" who has an impeccable record. Was he wrong about some things in the beginning? Yes. And a couple podcasts ago, I talked about that. I talked about that final week of February where we kind of, um, the response was inadequate and Fauci said some things about masks and, um, you know, that ended up not being true. However, I think that it was an evolving situation. I mean, uh, People have only been experts on this coronavirus. the longest could be seven or eight months, right? This is new. It's a novel coronavirus. so I'll give him a pass that he wasn't a hundred percent right on a couple of things in the beginning when there was absolute chaos going on, and also, I think that he probably was pressured into not giving the doomsday scenario early on. You don't survive fifty years in Washington without knowing how to be a little political to save your ass, so you know. I, I'm going to give Fauci a pass. But he finally has said enough. And he's been on podcasts and other venues giving interviews to, talking about like, yeah, the the numbers are going back up. We're not doing a good job. Other countries around the world are handling this much better. You know, and he's being honest. And now they're trying to take him out. I have a Fauci 2020 shirt that I bought on Etsy a couple of weeks ago that I'm going to have to start sporting more when I actually leave the house <laughs> to support Fauci because this is absurd. And while all this is going on, speaking of absurd, I'm sure people saw the controversy over the Goya company and the, the CEO of Goya praised President Trump during a Hispanic business round table event at the, in the Rose Garden in the White House last week where he said, we're blessed to have a leader like President Trump. Listen, (laughs) I am not one that's about cancel culture. I think we take that shit too far often, but I'm sorry. I don't blame people for saying to hell with Goya, are you kidding me? After the way this administration has treated Hispanics and Latinos, the rhetoric that Trump uses, the whole debacle at the border. I mean, I'm all for strong border um, security, but this has just been inhumane the way this, this administration has handled things. And the Goya uh, CEO, who's Hispanic, third or fourth generation family-owned company, goes out and says that shit. I mean, stop it! I know people need to kiss ass to the president and make him feel good to get what they want, but we're blessed to have a we're blessed to have a president, a leader like President Trump. Yeah, tell that to the hundred and forty thousand people who are dead, and the hundreds of thousands who are sick, and will get sicker and the more who will die because of the incompetence of this guy. Come on. So people are boycotting, calling for a boycott of Goya. Hey, it's a free country. It's capitalism. You have a free right to say whatever you want. But when you have a product that requires consumers to make a choice to buy it, they also have a choice not to buy it. And I don't blame them. And then this idiot Ivanka Trump poses in, a, in an all white, probably, you know, uh, designer outfit, holding up a can of Goya beans, like she's in some kind of che- cheesy, uh, what's what's the show on Telemundo? Sabado Higante or Univision, right? One of those commercials. What are you doing, Ivanka? You're not even, uh, you shouldn't even be in the White House, but what are you doing hawking a can of Goya beans? It's so tacky. These people are so tacky. And then to make it worse, Donald Trump has a display of Goya products on his Resolute desk in the Oval Office, smiling like the idiot that he is. Really? That's as bad as the Taco Bowls thing on Cinco de Mayo. These people are just the worst. This is what you spend your time doing. This is what you use the Resolute desk in the Oval Office for when we're in the middle of a freaking pandemic where people are dying Millions, tens of millions of people are out of work. This country is in chaos. And this is what you do. Chris Cuomo went off on this during his show. And I I felt every word he said. Terrible use of the president's time, authority. It's, well, you know, it's typical. He's a reality show con artist, huckster. Why would he be any different in the Oval Office? Speaking of that. Um, the campaign because the numbers are tanking and things are not looking good, but don't get, don't get complacent people. We are still three months away from this election. Anything can happen. Stay vigilant, but the polls don't look good in places where they should for the president. He, um, used a non-existent tropical storm last weekend to cancel his rally in New Hampshire. It was actually 75 degrees and sunny at the time that the the rally was supposed to happen. But there was a tropical, little tropical storm that went up the East Coast. Not a big deal. But they found that um, to be sufficient to, quote, cancel. I think it was postpone his rally. And uh, it was really about the fact they couldn't get their shit together in New Hampshire. And people weren't trying to come to these rallies, not wearing masks and all of that. And Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, that area, they've actually done a pretty good job controlling coronavirus. So, yeah. But anyway, after the Tulsa debacle, everybody thought that Trump's um, campaign manager, Brad Parscale, was toast for sure. But he ended up not being. He survived somehow. But he had been kind of on the outs over the last couple of weeks. And you know, he was getting a, a big profile. He was out front. Most campaign managers, you don't see them. They're behind the scenes. You see them a little bit, but they're not not like this. This guy, Brad Parscale, was a nobody. He did like website work for Eric Trump before 2016. And then he was brought in to do some digital stuff for the campaign back in 2016 when they had the C and D list people working for the campaign because no real consultants would work for the Trump campaign back then. They really kind of still don't now. So he he went from this literal like IT guy to becoming $94 million richer um, through his companies in the 2016 cycle. That's right. You heard me. He made $94 million through his companies during during the 2016 election cycle for the campaign, for the Trump campaign. Talk about fleecing. Okay. Then Trump, you know, he won, so he was happy with what happened. He hires him relatively early to be the campaign manager going into 2020 because the campaign reelection started the day he was sworn in. The campaign basically never stopped. And since then, his companies have made another 40 plus million dollars and He has, he's bought Ferraris and he's got two condos in Florida. He's got an oceanfront property in Fort Lauderdale. This guy has been living the high life off of the Trump campaign money. And he's been getting covers of magazines and profile stories about him. Yeah, we all know Trump doesn't like that. He doesn't like when somebody else starts to get the attention. So he'd been kind of on the outs a little bit already. They got got into a big argument Over the polling and other things a couple weeks ago, there was a story that said Trump threatened to sue him, threatened to sue his own campaign manager. (laughs) It's it's nuts. But anyway, um, so after Tulsa, we all know what happened there, where Brad Parscale was running around bragging that they had a million requests for tickets. Yeah, and six thousand people showed up, and we found out that it was possibly a, a, a TikTok social media prank. Where these kids and teenagers and K pop fans were requesting tickets that they had no plans on using. And of course, Brad Pascal um, went out there and made an ass of himself, bragging about it. And so did Trump, parroting that whole thing. Oh, it's a record number of requests. And they had to save face for that because we all know that his crowd size is very important to him. So we thought for sure Pascal was toast after that, but he wasn't. He survived. And there's like a weird dynamic going on within the campaign with Jared Kushner and, and Pascal, And now that Roger Stone is, has been commuted, don't even get me started on that. That just it has infuriated me. Roger Stone is a piece of shit criminal who has no business not being in jail. Uh, and, and it just burns my ass that, that Donald Trump commutes his sentence and this guy gets away with it. Let's just, just quickly Roger Stone is nobody's victim. He shouldn't be lionized. Fox News and all these people that are, that are holding him up as some example of, of a corrupt Justice Department, they've got to be kidding me. Bill Barr even said that his sentencing was fair. He was convicted of seven felonies, and he lied to Congress, lied to invest, investigators, hid information about Donald Trump, their collusion with Russia. And and Roger Stone was the intermediary between the Russian hacking unit Guccifer, which is run by Russian intelligence officers, and WikiLeaks, and the campaign. If you read the Mueller report, you'll see that there are examples of when Donald Trump was uh, getting off the phone with Roger Stone. It was initially redacted. It's not anymore. And he was talking about how he knew that there were going to be more document dumps through WikiLeaks. So... Stone didn't quote rat because he knew that Trump, he's been friends with Trump for over 40 years. He's been behind the scenes with him forever. So he knew there was a wink and a nod. Yes, the president has the constitutional authority to commute or pardon anyone's sentence he wants, but he doesn't have a right to do it corruptly. And that's a whole, that's going to be a whole different discussion. But the bottom line is that Roger Stone is out of prison. He won't step foot in prison again while, at least, not on these charges. Meanwhile, Michael Cohen, who chose to tell the truth, is back in prison because they're they're treating him differently, let's just say. They're treating him differently. He thought he was going to get it fitted for an ankle bracelet. He was released on house arrest because of coronavirus. Thought he was getting fitted for an ankle bracelet, meets with his probation officers. They try to hand him an agreement telling him that he can't talk to the press or finish writing his book or any of those things while he's home. He's like, wait, what? This isn't what I, we had agreed to. Where is this coming from? And his lawyers were like, hold on a second. This kind of feels like a violation of constitutional rights here. He was able to talk to the press and stuff while he was in prison. Why can't he do it while he's at home? Like what's happening? So they were like, okay, hold on, let's work this out. While they were waiting, the US Marshals show up and arrest Michael Cohen and bring him right back to Otisville to prison. Listen, I don't have, you know, Michael Cohen got what he deserved, but he's not being treated fairly. There's clear favoritism and clearly he's being punished because he did turn on Trump and it's not right. You know, that's not the role of the president. Roger Stone gets treated one way because he didn't quote rat and Michael Cohen is now sitting back in prison. It's ridiculous, ridiculous. Talk about rule of law, (laughs) law and order president bullshit. Nothing rule of law about this guy. He's a criminal. The White House is a criminal enterprise, an extension of his criminal enterprise. But anyway, so back to the campaign and Brad Parscale. So yeah, so this guy now after Tulsa, we thought for sure he was toast. And the Lincoln Project, my my buddies over at the Lincoln Project, actually to troll Brad Parscale a couple months ago, we put out an ad just because we knew it would it would annoy Donald Trump with the Ferraris and him bragging about his his, little, his half a million dollar boat that he's got and all this with Brad Parscale, how he was basically getting rich off of Donald Trump. Well, who knew that that would be prescient? And he got the boot this week. Uh, they didn't fire him outright. They just demoted him. And then they promoted his deputy, Bill Stepien, who used to work for Chris Christie and was instrumental in the whole Bridgegate stuff. How that guy escaped jail is a whole other story. I don't know. But yeah, that's now who the campaign manager is. If he makes it to the end of this election, I'll be shocked because everybody's expendable. Um, But this... <laughs> Bri Pascal, if you wanna if if you want to see where the money is going and how expenditures are are uh spent, you can go to something called opensecrets.org. Open secrets allows you to see the quarterly filings, the FEC filings of campaigns and of PACs and things like that. And you can see where the money's going because you have to report that. But there's also ways to obscure who's getting paid and how much as well. But Pascal, something else, the reason why he probably didn't get fully fired is because A, he probably knows where a lot of bodies are buried. But B, Kimberly Guilfoyle and Lara Trump are being paid $15,000 a month through one of Brad Pascal's companies. This way, they're not paid directly from the campaign. So it doesn't look like the Trump people are getting enriched directly by campaign donations. See how that works? The grift is, is (laughs) the grift is strong with these people. That's right. So you've got the president's son's girlfriend and wife are being paid $15,000 a month with campaign donations that go through Brad Parscale's company and then they pay them. What a scam. His companies are also getting money too. In the latest quarterly filing, it showed that $400,000 was paid to the Trump Hotel by the Trump campaign, seventeen point four million this cycle. <laughs> you got to be kidding me! So, to, so the do the, the people who are donating this money who think they're helping Trump's campaign, his reelection, do they know they're just enriching him? It's outrageous, absolutely outrageous, and and so corrupt. I can't even stand it. So pay attention to that. And Pascal, he said, I read somewhere that said he he said that he. He had to make between 700 and 800,000 as a campaign manager salary. Just to put that in perspective, Barack Obama's 2012 campaign manager made $128,000. Bernie Sanders' campaign manager in 2020 made 158,000. Michael Bloomberg's campaign manager and Bloomberg, who is a billionaire 46 times over 46 times over, paid his campaign manager $198,000. <laughs> But Brad Pascal, the former IT guy, is getting between seven dollars and $800,000 as a salary and making millions and millions through his companies and the campaign. Come on. I can't. Where's Drain the Swamp? I don't know how that's Drain the Swamp. Oh my God. Before I bring in um, Professor Jennifer Murcia, I just wanted to, I mentioned the Mary Trump book, and I, you know, I was talking about Fauci and how Trump and everyone, they're, they're attacking him now. And it just, it occurred to me as I was reading this book, what a damaged individual Donald Trump is. I mean, we see this every day. You don't have to have a PhD like Mary Trump does to in psychology to know, to recognize his, his disordered personality. But I always find it interesting when people who are experts in this area, so what they do... Break it down. And her book, Too Much and Never Enough: How My Family Created The Most, the World's Most Dangerous Man, she really outlines what a bastard his father was, which explains a lot. And we kind of knew this, I've said this in the past, but this book gives more specific examples. And it's just like, I found myself going, Well, no wonder Trump is like that. And the descriptions of things that Fred Trump did are exactly how Donald Trump behaves. It's um, it's quite remarkable in a sad and alarming way. I'm just going to read a couple excerpts from it before I bring in um, P- Professor Mershia because uh, I just think it's relevant. And if you haven't read the book and you're interested in it, I think you should. Mary Trump's book. She says, um, Fred seemed to have no emotional needs at all. Fred was Donald Trump's father. In fact, he was a high-functioning sociopath. Symptoms of sociopathy include a lack of empathy, a facility for lying, an indifference to right and wrong, abusive behavior, and a lack of interest in the rights of others. Having a sociopath as a parent, especially if there's no one else around to mitigate the effects, all but guarantees severe disruption in how children understand themselves, regulate their emotions, and engage in the real world. Fred's lack of real human feeling, his rigidity as a parent and a husband, and his sexist belief in a woman's innate inferiority likely left his wife feeling unsupported. So Donald Trump's mother, Mary Trump, was not really around much because she was ill a lot. She had a lot of health issues and she was emotionally unavailable also. So Donald really didn't have any any healthy emotional support as a kid growing up. So you have a sociopath for a father. You have an ill mother who was emotionally unavailable also. And then she dies when he's, um, I forgot how old, but still a child. It's a, a, a recipe for disaster. And the way he treated his other kids, um, especially his oldest son, Freddie, who was Mary Trump's father, uh, is really just, it's infuriating as I as I was reading through this. I mean, Fred Trump was an, an emotionally abusive parent. No doubt about it. The way he would demean... Fred Trump, Freddie, and, because Freddie didn't want to be like his dad. He had no interest in, in going into the family business, but Donald did. And Donald saw the way Freddie was treated, so he said, oh, I'm not going to be like that. And it ultimately killed Freddie because he was an alcoholic and ended up dying of alcohol-related ailments at 42. And just the callousness in the way that Fred Trump was so dismissive of him, um, it's infuriating. Another ex- excerpt from the book For Donald and Robert. Robert was the youngest son. For Donald and Robert, needing equated with humiliation, despair and hopelessness because Fred didn't want to be disturbed when he was home, it worked in his favor if his children learned one way or another not to need anything. Well, sure. That's why Donald Trump is has no empathy. He can't because his dad would would ridicule them if they needed anything because he didn't have time for that. It was an it was an annoyance. Um, One last passage, which I thought was interesting because it was about when Trump was time for Trump to go to school. (laughs) Um, Fred dismantled his oldest son by devaluing and degrading every aspect of his personality and his natural abilities until all that was left was self-recrimination and a desperate need to please a man who had no use for him. As I said, he was brutal to his oldest son, Freddie, Donald Trump's brother. That's what sociopaths do. They co-opt others and use them toward their own ends, ruthlessly and efficiently, with no tolerance for dissent or resistance. The only reason Donald escaped the same fate is that his personality served his father's purpose. Fred destroyed Donald too, but not by snuffing him out as he did Freddie. Instead, he short-circuited Donald's ability to develop and experience the entire spectrum of human emotion. The implications of that limitation became clear when Donald entered school. Neither of his parents had interacted with him in a way that helped him make sense of his world, which contributed to his inability to get along with other people and remained a constant buffer between him and his siblings. It also made reading social cues extremely difficult, if not impossible for him, and it still is a problem he has today. Donald didn't understand any of that because the rules in the house, at least as they applied to the boys, to be tough at all costs, lying is okay, admitting you're wrong or apologizing was weakness, clashed with the rules he encountered at school. Fred's fundamental beliefs about how the world worked in life, there can only be one winner and everybody is a loser, an idea that essentially precluded the ability to share, and that kindness is weakness were clear. It goes on. It talks all about that. And I, no wonder Donald Trump is the way he is. No wonder. And that's why we need to get him out. So with that, I'd like to bring in this week's guest for our great conversation about the demagogue that Donald Trump is, the demagogue for president, author, Professor Jennifer Murcia, up next. On this episode of Honestly Speaking with Tara, many of you know that I like to bring on smart women and um, because I think women are badass. And when I find one, I want to highlight her on Honestly Speaking with Tara. And I have been following the work of my next guest for a few years now because some consider her to be the leading authority on Trump's rhetoric, which I find fascinating. So when I saw that she was writing a book, um, I said, I've got to get you because the way she breaks it down in her book, um, Trump's use of language and how he got elected and the way he manipulates large groups of people is really unlike anyone else that I've seen out there in the way she does it. So I'm really, really thrilled to bring Jen Marcia to the show because she is um, just uh, an amazing brain into what's going on and and breaks it down. She is a professor of rhetoric at Texas A and M and author of the new book "Demagogue for President: The Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump." Jen, welcome to Honestly Speaking with Tara. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It's a pleasure. So before we get started, um, we talked a little bit about this, but I find your background and your name fascinating <laughs> and that you are from Malta. Please explain a little bit about, the, about that. Yeah,
1: well, actually, I'm from Detroit, but my dad is from Malta um, and yeah, Malta is this Awesome little place. Um, it's about 60 miles south of Sicily. It's a little dot in the second R of the word Mediterranean on your globe, mm-hmm. um, and apparently it is um, the most Catholic place outside of the Vatican. It's like 90 some 98% Catholic. Also, they have a super high voter turnout rate. Uh, it's like second highest in the world, uh, 96 97%. Um, they drive on the British side of the road because. It was uh, taken over by the British because Napoleon had invaded and they needed uh, help from to save them from Napoleon. And uh, it's just a cool place. I guess it's the most bombed place on Earth because of World War II. So my dad grew up um, – in Malta during World War II. And they were bombed six, seven times a day because they were so close to Italy. So um, just a really fascinating place. If you have a chance to go, you should.
0: I would really love to go there. As I talked to you off off uh, air, I was explaining that a good friend of mine, his name is Ronnie Dunstan, him and his wife started a travel community called Road to 100 Countries. And they had the privilege of, of uh, going to Malta, and they were fascinated with it, and it was one of their favorite places. So um, I hope I get to go there. I've been to Sicily a few times. I got married there. For those of you who follow me, know that I have a you know Italy is very close to my heart, especially Sicily. So uh, next time I go, I'm going to have to make that jump over to Malta and check it out. I love history, and it's a fascinating culture. So I just wanted to hear people uh, get people chance, give people a chance to hear that because um, it's not every day that you meet someone that is from Malta <laughs> or whose family is from. Malta. So um, let's talk about your book. You um, I really enjoyed reading it. It's um, exquisitely written um, and because it really is a deep dive into the rhetoric and the way that Donald Trump uses this. To manipulate people. Um, we also often hear the term demagogue used and you break down the, the different definitions of the term demagogue and all the way back to the to the Greek origination of some of the terms that that are that you use. Um, but the idea of him being a dangerous demagogue, I think, really resonated with me because we see this every day. And in your book, you talk about that um rhetoric that undermines democracy demonstrates a dangerous authoritarianism and you ask the question how dangerous is trump how dangerous is donald trump <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: well uh it seems like he's pretty dangerous um you, you know wrote a so book about
0: it right i <laughs> you got a good book I for you to write,
1: read. <laughs> <laughs> i did write a book about it um yeah you know so a demagogue, just, you know, the straight dictionary definition is the translation is a leader of the people. And, you know, we would want someone to emerge from the people and lead them. And so, you know. If you look it up in the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, it says that the first definition is someone who defends the rights of the people against the other parts of the state, and the second definition is the one we're more familiar with, um, and that's the you know someone who uses polarizing propaganda for their own gain. Um, and so what I try to do in the book is show how Trump's followers believed that he was a heroic demagogue, and they still do, um, you know, so they see him as defending their interests against the other parts of the state. And, you know, everyone else sees him, you know, as a dangerous demagogue, as a villain um, in that second sense. And, you know, so I go through the book and I try to show all the ways that he appealed to his followers, you know, in this heroic way and, you know, the rest of it (laughs) um, to everyone else. And, um, you know, at the end, I'm just like, well, so, you know, the question you ask, how dangerous is this? And, you know, You know, it undermines democracy, right? So when you persuade people without consent, um, it's a violation of democratic norms, and that's authoritarian. Um, But the real danger for demagogues is that they're unaccountable leaders. So the criterion that I use to judge, and this comes from ancient Athens, you know, between the heroic demagogue and the dangerous demagogue is whether or not they're accountable for their words and actions. Mm -hmm. And what I try to show in the book is that, you know, Donald Trump refuses to be held accountable. In some ways he claimed, you know, as he was running, he, he said he would never be held accountable. He wouldn't be held accountable to political correctness or to the political elite or the media or whatever. Um, those things made his followers think he was a hero. Um, and, and then he also says, you know, you can't pay attention to how I talk. You can't hold me accountable for the kind of language that I use, but that language itself um, is dangerous. And, um, you know, just look at the results of how he's handled um, the coronavirus. Um, crisis. You know, he says he won't be held accountable. He says right. he's not responsible, yep. and that's the danger of a dangerous demagogue. Is you put someone in power who refuses to be held accountable.
0: In your book, you say dangerous demagogues likewise use weaponized rhetoric to reject or show a weak commitment to the democratic rules of the game of public deliberation, especially to prevent themselves from being held accountable for their words and actions. That is um, what we see almost on a daily basis with Donald Trump through everything he says and does. What I find fascinating is how he was able to inoculate himself from this accountability. And you, in the book, you kind of go through examples of how um, you start, you mentioned it already about uh, positioning himself as an, uh, as a hero versus villain. And there are examples that you, you cite throughout the book about, how he does that. But what were some of the most effective ways where he positioned himself as a hero to his people um, that inoculated him from this accountability? <laughs>
1: Yeah, so, um, and it's such an interesting thing to me, you know, I, I'm endlessly fascinated. It's, you know, in some ways, it's a train wreck, of course, but right. um, it's just, it's just so interesting to see how he did it. Um, so he used three strategies repeatedly to bring himself closer or ingratiate himself with his followers. Um, so he used things like ad populum, which is appealing to the wisdom of the crowd. Um, you know, so it wasn't all of the crowd, it was specifically his followers his people were the best people, the smartest people. He would claim that he loved them. You know, he's not known to be empathetic in any way, but he was empathetic um, in 2016 when he talked about like the way that his people had suffered and, you know, the poor leadership that had led to their suffering. And, you know, he really said, like, I understand you and I understand, you know, how frustrated you are and, you know, I'm going to fight for you. I'm a fighter. And that that kind of thing really resonated with people, um, you know, in the, the the places where I quote his followers, you know, either online or, you know, being interviewed or whatever. Um, you know, they, they're all saying the same thing. Like, he understands me. He sounds like us. He understands what we're going through. Um, you know, so really that kind of empathy that he had. And it was part of this ad populum appeal that said, you know. Political correctness is political doublespeak, and it covers up, you know, the corruption. There's this conspiracy out there between the political elite and the media. And, you know, everything that you believe in and hold dear is criticized by them. And, you know, really taking advantage of distrust and polarization and frustration in a way that connected him to his base and separated his base of support from everyone else. Um, And so you couldn't even intervene in that, like because you were the distrusted other, you weren't a part of, you know, their closed circle um, of good
0: people. And you talk about that, that that is also something that's very strategic in um, in the way to weaponize language is uh, how you can make people the, the people feel as though only you can speak for them and they feel. A connection to you um what's yeah. interesting to me is that you use the term empathy when we often see how what we consider the day-to-day definition of empathet- empathy we don't see donald you don't think donald trump as someone who's <laughs> empathetic he's like the complete opposite of it yet the irony of it is he convinced people i don't think he's empathetic i think he's a narcissist he's incapable of empathy but like you say in your book, you say he's a strategic speaker and the strategy was I'm going to manipulate and convince these people that I'm empathetic. I think there's yeah. a distinction there that should be important because he's not empathetic, but he's com- he was able to strategically use his language to convince people that he felt their pain. Right. Yeah. Bill Clinton, I think, authentically got, got that across. Donald Trump perverted that and elevated it to a whole different level.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, there are a few places in the book where I try to talk about um, his relationship with his followers. Um, And, you know, you can't blame some of these people, right? Like I said, I'm from Detroit. And um, I'm in the generation where, you know, as we were coming up, we were all gonna go work in car factories like our parents did. Mm -hmm. And, you know, nobody was taking college prep courses. And nobody had, you know, a savings account for that, you know, to go to college, everyone was just gonna have a nice middle class life like their parents did by working in a car factory and you know like that got taken away from us uh <laughs> you know like in high school mm-hmm. um and you know in in that area is, just still hasn't really recovered from it um you know and so to me i understand that you know that pain of like what happened to <laughs> How is my life supposed to
0: work? Right. What happened to our way of life? This was our road to the American. Yeah. How it's been taken from us and who has taken it or why it was taken or why the world has changed has different. There's different um, explanations for that. But how people feel whose fault it is. uh, Donald Trump certainly exploited that. You talk a lot about how exactly exploited people's frustration and public distrust of government and institutions, Um, rightfully so, right, because of these changing landscapes, but who they place that blame on, um, where that fear and that blame went is what Donald Trump exploited. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, I really tried to
1: remind myself of that a lot as I was writing, like the people who follow Donald Trump, you know, maybe they were right to be distrustful and to be, you know, frustrated. Um, you know, maybe they were right to say that, that politics isn't working for them and you know that they wanted to be heard, you know? Like they weren't wrong for
0: that. But Donald Trump absolutely manipulated them, <laughs> took advantage of it. <laughs> for sure. Um and not only did he and not only did he do that, he uh he engaged in other more darker areas of, yeah. of, the, of that frustration. Um I, you know, I often talk about how he unearthed this. Um, really disturbing racist and populist um, nationalist kind of ugliness that was not mainstreamed before him. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, I think that's one of the more interesting and, and um, maybe dark <laughs> chapters in the book. Um, it's right in the middle. So I feel like there's kind of a neat story arc. It is somewhat intentional. But, um, you know, I really tried to show how Trump used the rhetorical figure of paralipses, mm-hmm. which is I'm not saying I'm just saying um, to encourage and cultivate um, the white nationalist and racists who supported him, um, while denying or, that, or at least preventing us from holding him accountable for being a racist and for amplifying racist sentiment. Um, and it was a really tough chapter to write, um, partially because, you know, I had to go into all those white nationalist communities online and really like read what was happening and try to understand how they understood the story, um, Um, of the 2016 election and how they understood Donald Trump. And, and I thought it ended up being, you know, just a fascinating back and forth between like mainstream media, Trump, the white nationalists and how they were reacting to what Trump was doing, what the mainstream media was saying. And, you know, just this sort of interplay of all of it. And, you know, you just couldn't hold Trump accountable. He would, he would do all these things to, to wink, wink, wink at the white nationalists. And then he would say, but I'm the least racist person you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> to Don Lemon, no less. That I think one of the first times he said that was to yeah. Don Lemon, my colleague <laughs> over at CNN, during the election in 2015. And people were like, "Yeah, the least racist person you know? who like, <laughs> raises it like that that means that you have that you are racist and you're the but you're the least (laughs) racist of all the people like what and that was that he got away with it
1: that's right. That's right. Don Lemon has a couple of, um, of good scenes
0: in my yeah. book. Yes. And it's, it's scenes they are because this, we are living through the worst reality TV show nightmare ever. Um, that just won't end. Please let it end on November 3rd. Um, so, so also There's- go ahead. Oh, there's a line
1: that I like. It's in the chapter on building the wall. He's like, but why did you have to call him rapist though?
0: Right, <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Um, you know, it, it's, it, I highlighted a part in your book where I, I I said it before that you called Trump a strategic, um, that he was a a strategic uh, speaker. And it doesn't feel like that because it's usually streams of consciousness and he's all over the place. He doesn't complete full thoughts and sentences and subject verb agreement doesn't matter with this guy. But there is a method to his madness. Um, and it's uh, again, I mean, it frightens me because of how effective it it, it has been. But in your chapter um, about Paralypsis, I think the part that part of what he does is Another one of the more alarming aspects because he just says shit and throws it out there. And the examples you used, one with the the conspiracy theories with white supremacists and kind of giving them aid and comfort and nods and winks, but also his use of just flat out wackadoodle conspiracy theories from uh, Ted Cruz's dad was part of the JFK conspiracy. Maybe. I don't know. I'm not saying it. (laughs) Many people are saying, right? How many times have we heard him say that or tweet that? Many people are saying. And then in chapter 14, you talk about, you use the biggest example, which was the Russia, if you're listening. Why did you feel like that was an inflection point enough to write a whole chapter about it?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I absolutely know what you're talking about to say like, boy, he doesn't seem like he knows what he's doing. Cause, uh, certainly not, you know, eloquent or well-argued, um, prose in any way. Um, but he did consistently use these six rhetorical strategies. I first started, um, noticing them in December or November of, um, 2015 and analyzed, you know, the, the whole campaign after that. And, you know, he just kept doing these same things over and over and over again. So, um, you know, it's amazing how consistent he actually was. I was, I was even surprised by that. Um, but yeah, paralipses is probably his signature yes. and I love it as an example because you know, people always say, well, but does he really know what he's doing? <laughs> you know, cause again, you know, we don't want to believe that he does. Um, and you know, I, I don't know if he knows the word paralipses, right? Oh, wow. I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt it too. I, I really do doubt it. But, you know, he tells you as he's doing it, that he knows he's doing it because he says, I know I shouldn't say this, but I know it's not politically correct, but <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know i'm not saying this but right so he tells you in 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 the figure itself that he knows that he's doing it so i think that that's a great example for that reason um and it's really really rewarding for him um, on lots of levels one level is that it provides him with plausible deniability so that he can say well, I, I wasn't saying that you know i you can't hold me accountable for saying it um so you know that's something that he always wants he always wants plausible deniability but then it's also funny, you know, and entertaining. Like he uses it to circulate rumors or ad hominem attacks or, or whatever it is. And, um, you know, it provides a kind of backstage or inside look, you know, to supposedly what Trump is really thinking, you know, the awful truth that he won't tell anyone else. And so it makes you feel connected to him. It makes you feel like you know what he's really thinking and you know him. It's all an act. But it also makes you laugh because, you you know, the ironic wink of saying the thing that you say, you're not saying while you're saying it, um, you know, it's, it's pleasurable. Um, and yeah, and that's, that's the thing with, with Russia and the, are you listening? Um, you know, if you watch that news conference, he had said earlier, it's probably Russia. And then somebody asked him again, he said, oh, you know, I doubt it's Russia. It's probably China or some guy, you know, sitting in his underwear or whatever in his basement. And then, he gets like an idea in his head and you can sort of see like he stands up straighter. he grabs the microphone, mm-hmm. you know, and he kind of speaks more clearly. And he does this thing where he says, Russia, if you're listening, um, and Russia was listening. Yes, they were. <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> According to the Mueller report, like they started um, trying to hack the Clinton campaign that night. That's right. But also, if you look at Russian propaganda, RT, Sputnik, you know, they immediately started to report on that um, as it happened. They reported that he said it. They reported that there was fallout and controversy for him saying it. Um, You know, there was an incredible back and forth that you could follow between RT and Sputnik, between Russian propaganda and the Trump campaign and WikiLeaks that was all in public. Like you didn't need a special prosecutor to see it. It was just right there.
0: Right. And um, and even still, and as one of the, because you go through what your, the chapters in your book, the way that you go through it, you break down those six, um, techniques that he uses and then you give examples. So, so if you, um, for people who want to know what they are, read the book, but, um, (laughs) see you, uh, one of the examples also is that, you know, this not being able to be held accountable for it. He continues to, um, deny that there was any Russian collusion or that he had anything to do with it, or even the Roger Stone um example and the commutation and his role in that whole thing is another one. Roger Roger Stone made his entire career out of conspiracy theories and rumors and the dark arts of you know the dirty trickster and all. And that was Donald Trump's right hand guy for 40 years. And yeah. you know, they're all in cahoots together. Like there is some semblance of um, consistency and strategy that I think we often underestimate with some of the yeah. things that Donald Trump does.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Roger Stone's all over my book, and not in a good way. No. <laughs>
0: no. Well, I mean, I don't know how. There's really not much good <laughs> that Roger Stone represents anyway. So you know, I wouldn't apologize for that. <laughs> Yeah, him and
1: Alex Jones um, are quite the team, and and that's another sort of interesting subplot in the book is. Um, and I think I learned this phrase or this term of art um, after I was done, and so I don't know if I actually snuck it back in in the revisions or not. But propaganda um, analysts and theorists, they um, they have a term called narrative laundering, mm. and it's like money laundering, right? But instead of you know taking dirty, corrupt money and uh, <laughs> making it clean through investments, um, you know, people who who study propaganda follow how um, you know frame memes Narratives, conspiracies, whatever can emerge from like dirty, polluted, fringy, um, you know, non reputable sources and then get repurposed and laundered um, into mainstream talking points. And Donald Trump just did that continuously throughout the campaign. So whether it was white nationalists and he was, you know, reusing or narrative laundering their talking points, or whether it was conspiracy theorists like Alex Jones, dirty tricksters like Roger Stone, um, you know, all of these like yahoos, (laughs) um, you know, ended up being like the brain trust of the Trump 2016 presidential campaign. Um, And I don't think that most, you know, mainstream Republican voters who voted for the guy have any idea that those are the people who, you know, they're like repeating the the talking points now.
0: Well, the media would, you would think, be the ones who would make sure that the American people didn't know that. But you talk about um, how sometimes the way the media covered Trump in 2016 fed right into his tactics of distraction and manipulation, because he would in one of the ways he would avoid accountability would be by changing the subject. And then yeah. trying to flip it onto somebody else. And then the media would chase that shiny object. And he would do this in such large quantities all the time. It was difficult to nail him down to one thing. But talk a little bit about how you felt the media may have um, contributed to this when they're supposed to be holding him accountable, but kind of failed yeah. him a little bit in, in, during the last election.
1: Yeah, it's really fascinating. And I think probably the most important example of that was when, um, the news broke about the Trump University scam, Mm -hmm. right? All these documents get released and put online that show that Donald Trump was absolutely a con man with this Trump University thing. You know, there were the playbooks about how they ran these things. And, you know, they were really run like, um, I don't know, multi-level marketing schemes. schemes. Pyramid, thank you. It was just crazy stuff. Like, you know, they would tell people to max out their credit cards they would um, tell their, their people who were running these things, how to cherry pick, like who looked the most desperate um, and how to butter them up by saying, you know, I noticed you and congratulations for being here. And, you know, like all of these like mm-hmm. sleazy like a, marketing tricks. Also like a very cult-like where cult like prey
0: on, they on would, people and their vulnerability
1: Yeah. They would promise them like, oh, you can have your picture taken with Donald Trump and it would be like a cardboard cutout of him, <laughs> you yeah. know, just like. A scam wow. on every level. Yep. And instead of focusing on that story which if that story really would have been well understood it would have completely undercut Trump's hero narrative because his whole claim to why he should be president was because he was the guy from the apprentice he was the guy who was always the most powerful in the room he made good choices you know he looked presidential he looked like someone who wanted to hold people to account and you know fix stuff but, you know, he was a con man <laughs> and that character on The Apprentice wasn't him. Um, and and so if that story would have really like gotten through to Trump voters, that it really could have changed the way they understood him. Understood him. But instead, he distracted our attention with an ad hominem attack. Um, and so if you remember, he said that he couldn't get a fair case. Um, he couldn't get a fair trial because the judge in the case was maybe Mexican. And because of that, right, it was all racism. And so then the story changes. And instead of talking about the legitimacy of the case and all the evidence against Trump that is public at this point, you know, they talk about whether or not Trump can get a fair trial. And, oh, my gosh, Trump said this terrible thing, um, you know, and proving that the judge is from Indiana. (laughs) And, you know, like the narrative gets completely shifted in a way that, you know, you wouldn't think makes Trump look good exactly. Um, but you know, for his followers, he doesn't, you know they don't care about that. Um, and for them, you know, they don't trust the media. they're, you know frustrated with immigration, all these things anyway. So you know it's not a negative for them. Um, but Yeah, so that's just a great example. So ad hominem, that ad um, in the fallacy name, ad is Latin for two. And so you distract from the central claim, right, which is that Trump is a con man and the Trump University case proves it. And you distract our attention from that to the person. So to the person of the judge. And that's exactly what happened. The media just followed right along. And the big picture is that... You know, Trump broke all the rules about how the spectacle of you know media reporting works. Um, he just uh, Jay Rosen from NYU said that Trump tried to break the media and break the press in 2016, and I think that that's true. Um, you know, there are sort of accepted rules, like the media gets to ask questions and the candidates get to answer them, and you know they can deflect and you know within a certain range. But you know you what Trump would do is he would just attack you for asking the question. Mm -hmm. He would just be like, why are you so corrupt? Why are you asking me such a stupid question? You know, this is why everybody hates you.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And he literally said these things and we still see that happening now with his, uh, latest press secretary. She comes out with scripted insults and comebacks to turn things around on the press every single time she goes up there. Um, And it's it's in it's incredibly frustrating because I just don't think that the media has figured out a good way to combat it. Like they still have not Some of them fight back. You know, like my buddy Jim Acosta at CNN, he fights back or Yamiche. Yeah, uh, I'll send her over at at PBS and um, uh, the the great female reporters over there at CBS. Their names are escaping me right now. uh, Paula Reed. Um, they have found the way kind of, they push back and you see Trump just lose it when he yeah. does that, but then they get accused of being activist journalists. And then it becomes about them. Right. And it's like, you know, you can't win. <laughs> so you can't, no, you can't you win. Do you do? But I said they need to keep doing right. it because they've got to hold them accountable. Both of them, all of them, him and his enablers keep doing it because when you do that, it shows the American people how duplicitous their arguments really are. Yeah. That's right.
1: Um, you know, you're right. If they fight back, then, um, then Trump, you know, accuses them of being biased. And if they take it, then, you know, they're weak and he wins. And and so it's almost like there's no winning either way. But, um, But, yeah, I mean, I guess I I have to say I love to see it, (laughs) you know, when they do go after him, especially the ladies, you Mm -hmm. know, he'll call them nasty, but they don't care.
0: (laughs) That's right. They don't care. And (laughs) that drives him even more up the wall because he cannot he's such a misogynist. He can't stand uh, smart women who stand up for themselves and who don't put up with his bullshit, which is, you know. Um, yeah. Something that that speaks straight to how insecure he is and what a little boy on the inside he really is. So, but that's what Mary Trump's book is about, and I would love to get her on to talk about it. But I am going to read her book next, where we can talk a little. <laughs> we can get a little more insight into why Donald Trump is as screwed up as he is. Um, but anyway, uh, in the meantime, <laughs> we need to figure out ways to combat him. And I'm glad you brought up the the Trump University example. I had that marked um, as one of the sections I wanted to make sure we talked about because. I thought that that would have been one of the biggest blows to his campaign. Yeah. I come from New Jersey. I often talk about how I'm very familiar with the way he bankrupted Atlantic City and his you know screwed over the, the the contractors and the small business owners and how his reputation was just so awful for that like he is not for the little guy but he was able to create this persona that he was mostly because people saw him in their living rooms as the authoritative businessman through the apprentice mm-hmm. and that is really what created hit this persona for him that he was able to use that as a springboard so when the Trump University story hit And it would seem quite unequivocal that it was a scam. It was a fraud. They ordered to pay $25 million back to refund these poor folks that got duped by it. That was a, like you said, it was a roadmap to how fraudulent and full of shit he was. And Hillary Clinton gave a whole speech on it. And I thought it was an excellent speech. And I'm no fan of Hillary Clinton's, but I thought that was one of the better speeches she gave because she laid it out. It seemed obvious to me and you, but once again, (laughs) Teflon Don, it did not touch him, and it I
1: didn't touch him. That's
0: where I kind of said to myself, "Holy shit, I don't know what's gonna what's gonna work. If that isn't gonna work, if that's not going to um, cut into that hero narrative that he's created, I don't know what is." Yeah,
1: that's exactly right. And you know, when I think about my memories of that summer, my memories are of you know the the judge, the Trump taco you know bowl oh. you know like yeah. i think about like the 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 things that that my attention was drawn to in that moment. And and it wasn't until I went back and looked at it that I was like, oh, that's why he gave that ridiculous press conference. And oh, that's why he did that thing with the judge. And oh, 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 you know, just (laughs) shake my head. And you're right. um, You know, Hillary Clinton gave a good speech. She had a great ad. I actually retweet this ad all the time. (laughs) Um, You know, she had a great satirical ad about Trump University Um, you know, she did the right things, but it just didn't stick.
0: Nope. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that she was such a polarizing and toxic figure. Nobody wanted to hear from Hillary Clinton. Um, Nobody did. And she had her own issues as far as um, corruption and, uh, you know, accusations of enriching herself and not being trustworthy. So yeah. the messenger was already tainted. Um, it didn't it, it just did not resonate. And the Republicans who ran against him in the primary, they waited too long to go after Trump. So, by yeah. the time they took him seriously. That ship had already sailed, and there was no stopping. Yeah. So the more credible sources who could have done it, they blew it early on. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, I know, think that's right. It was, it was. It was too late. So. Well, um, I, before we wrap it up, I um uh, well I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted you to tell the, the quick story about Alex Jones because um you mentioned him a few minutes ago, and you had an interesting run in with Alex Jones early on (laughs) in your kind of journey on this Trump rhetorical nightmare voyage uh, to talk about that. Yeah, I, um, so I was invited
1: to be a panelist at the Texan, Texas Tribune's Trib Fest, um, which is like a politics and media festival. And it's here in Austin, Texas. And I was on a panel that was about Alex Jones and Donald Trump and weaponized communication, you know, my research. And, um, listening to Charlie Warzel, who's now the New York times. And at the time he was at Buzzfeed and he was talking about what Alex Jones had done to be deplatformed, um, in the sort of month ahead of, of when we were doing this thing. And, you know, I am listening to him and I look up, You know, and there is Alex Jones (laughs) sitting right in front of me. And, you know, he's manspread. He's, you know, got his legs wide. He's got this bullhorn between his legs. He's wearing a grimace on his face. And he's like got camera crews.
0: (laughs) Oh, my God.
1: Yeah, it was, it was amazing. Um, (laughs) He, he bullhorned us. I learned that phrase. Um, So he interrupted the panel and basically did his show. Um, And, you know, he had prearranged a couple of like stooges to attack him. Um, So, you know, I'm watching him like direct people in and out of the scene and um, tell his camera people where to be. And at one point he stops himself in the middle of this rant and tells me I got to change my phone because I'm messing up the aspect ratio, you know, I'm holding the camera the wrong way. Oh and
0: my, are you serious?
1: I swear. Oh He's like, I think oh. he called me honey. He's like, you gotta, you're, you're messing up the aspect ratio, honey. You got to change your camera. <laughs> Um, Unbelievable!
0: And these people.
1: <laughs> it was it was something, and he really, you know, you know, it's a great example of weaponized communication because he attacked us, um, attacked the program, and I invited him, you know, to like break character, like, hey, Alex Jones, it would be great if you wanted to sit down and like get a mic, and um, you know, we can we can talk about this because I thought it'd be really cool if he did that, uh, but he didn't, and you know, he kept like re-editing it and putting it on um, his infowar and saying he'd been attacked by these, you know, crazed Democrats and um, called us bootlickers of the establishment and the people who put Stalin in power. And, you know, I'm just a little nobody college professor. Oh, my gosh.
0: <laughs> I'm, not, you know, I'm not any of that. <laughs> well, you are certainly not a nobody. Um, you have really tapped into an important uh, insight into why Donald Trump is so dangerous um and i think that people more people need to read your writings read your book demagogue for president because it um it breaks down how he did it uh and you know before people just look at this and hang their heads and go oh my god we have an authoritarian for a president he could possibly win again w- what do we need to look for how can he be stopped like do you see a, a similar playbook as we approach this uh the final quarter of the 2020 election? Do you see some similarities and do you think it'll work again?
1: Yeah, I've seen him um, using some of the same arguments, you know, basically just swapping Hillary Clinton's name for Biden's name. So once you're really familiar with the accusations, I think, you know, like the accusation of corruption, um, you know, the the appeal to hypocrisy and distrust, um, all of that, I think, is very, very similar. Um, And, you know, I'm I'm not political here. I'm just an academic. So, you know, my job is to show how these things work And to provide the analysis so that people can make their decisions for themselves. You know, so that would be my, my, my hope for the book is that people would learn to recognize these strategies, see how they're deployed, why they're deployed, how they work to distract our attention. um, And then, you know, decide for themselves what they think about
0: it. I think that's a a fair assessment. You have a a part in the book where you talk about how to control an uncontrollable leader. So if you want to know the answer, you got to read the book. Um, Jen, thank you so much. This is uh, it's been a pleasure to to, to chat with you. And the book is Demagogue for President, the Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump. This, This is the story about how Trump used language as a weapon to win the 2016 election. You write and you say to people, it's going to make you mad. But we've got something sometimes you've got to get a little pissed off before you get up (laughs) off your ass and do something to change it. And that's why it's so important that people pay attention and make sure that they're involved in in uh, this year's election cycle and vote, vote, vote. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Again, another thank you to Jennifer Marcia for a great conversation. Uh, check out her book, "Demagogue President, the Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump, out in bookstores now. So that's it for this week's edition of Honestly Speaking. Be sure to follow me on social media at Tara Setmayer at honestly underscore Tara. Also a little quick cross promotion. I appeared on Politicon's web um podcast this week with my good friend Sally Cohn. We reunited. Clay Aiken is the is the podcast host. It's called How the Heck Do We Get Along? That's the name of the podcast by Politicon. And also um there was another woman her name was Emily from The Federalist. I forget her last name now, but The Federalist is run by Megan McCain's husband, Ben Dominich, so that was a little awkward, but Emily was cool. Uh, but it's a lively discussion. And Sally and I spent a lot of time together in 2016 and 2017, touring the country, doing college speeches, like a point counterpoint kind of college tour. And we could show people that you can get along, even though you come from completely diametrical uh, political points of view. Sally is a big progressive Bernie supporter. Um, obviously I was not, I'm on the other side, but she is amazing. She's super smart, has a heart of gold. I just adore her. So it was nice to reunite with my buddy, Sally Cohn on that podcast. So you can also check me out talking about stuff there too. Um, again, thank you for listening this week. I'll see you next week for another episode.